our Advent Sermon Series, our journey through the prophets this morning, uh, by turning to the prophet Micah, chapter 5, uh, verses 2 through 5a. Listen now for God's word to you. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth, then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Paradoxes are a really interesting issue in philosophy. A paradox is an absurd or self-contradictory statement that at first glance appears to be false but may in fact be true. So there, is the, there are a lot of famous paradoxes, one of those being the paradox of the card. and It works like this. So you have a card with a saying on both sides and on side A it says, the statement on the other side of this card is true. And you flip over the card and it says on side B, the statement on the other side of this card is false. Well, which is it? These two self-negating statements, then you can't ascribe truth value to either one of them. Or there's the famous paradox of your grandfather that you should definitely not go back in time and kill your grandfather. Number one, it's immoral. And number two, it creates a, a rift in the fabric of space and time. So if you go back to kill your grandfather, then you yourself are not born. But then the paradox is created, then you're not born to go back in time to kill your grandfather. This whole riff in the fabric of space and time. There's the famous paradox of Theseus's ship. So Theseus is this mythical Greek king uh, who loved sailing. And so they kept his ship in the Athenian harbor, sort of as a memorial, a tribute, a, a museum to Theseus. But over time, it's a wood ship, the planks begin to rot, and so they start to replace them here and there until finally all of the planks of this ship have been replaced. So is it still Theseus's ship? And then let's add some complicating factors that what if somebody took all of the discarded planks from that old ship and made a new ship from it? Is that then Theseus's ship? So there are a lot of famous paradoxes, and maybe you're a little bit annoyed with me this morning for making your head explode and twisting you into knots on this, the eve of our Lord's birth. But on another level, I'm not that sorry, uh, because paradoxes seems to be the way that God operates, that God operates in these paradoxical, these absurd, these seemingly nonsensical ways. So all the way back in the beginning, when God wants to create a great nation to channel God's blessings through, who does God call? God doesn't call a young couple in the prime of their life with tons of children. He calls Abraham and Sarah, this elderly couple who is well beyond childbearing years, and says to them, your descendants will be so great that you can't even count them. Look at the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the beach. You're not going to be able to count how many descendants you have. There's that one, or, or when God wants to, uh, to put God's being, to attach God's being to one group of people, to one nation, who does God choose? God chooses tiny little Israel that sits at the, the crossroads of the major empires of world history, 
that God chooses this small, tiny nation that's constantly being run over, that when God chooses the people to bind God's self to, God chooses the last kid picked for kickball in the schoolyard. God binds God's self to the JV team. Or when it comes to the Christmas story, God binds or God chooses Mary, this virgin from this little town of Nazareth, this podunk town. Christmas is just one giant paradox. Mary, a virgin giving birth, and the eternal God being born in the world. Or when God wants to anoint a new king after the disastrous reign of the first king of Israel, a king named Saul, God sends the prophet Samuel out to the tiny little town of Bethlehem on the margins of the world and says, choose David, the last of eight sons who is the shepherd. He will be the king. And in the memory of the people of God, this is their, their greatest king. Bethlehem is where we find ourselves this morning in the prophet Micah. That Micah says, you, a little Bethlehem, you little tribe from the, the clan of Judah, you are not least among the tribes of, Ju- of Judah. This tiny little insignificant town where big and significant things happen. That when Micah wants to look for the light piercing the darkness against the backdrop of the, the chaos and the geopolitical crisis that's going on in his environment, where does he look? Where does he tell others to look? Tiny little Bethlehem. We should be used to this by now at the end of our Advent series, Moving Through the Prophets, but there's always some sort of crisis going on in the background of the prophets. We should be accustomed to that. And if you're just joining us for the first time uh, in this Advent season, first of all, welcome. But that's just the truth, is that there's always this chaos going on in the background of the prophets. And this is true for Micah as well. That Micah is what's, one, is what's known as one of the 8th century prophets. And so that means his ministry takes place in the late 700s to the early 600s BC. And this is a pivotal time in the history of the people of God. So the Assyrian Empire is on its ascent. It's making its way throughout much of the near Middle East. And it conquers the tiny little kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and it conquers their Uh, capital city of Samaria in the year 722 BC, uh, under the direction of their king, Tilglath-Pileazar III. There's going to be a test. Tilglath-Pileazar III, they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, and Judah, where Jerusalem is located, survives destruction, but they become a vassal kingdom of the Assyrians. So they avoid destruction, but they are, in a sense, an occupied nation, paying tribute to the Assyrians. Twenty years later, another Assyrian king, this time named Sennacherib, you got it? Tilglath-Pileazar III and Sennacherib. It's going to be on the final exam. Uh, Sennacherib launches incursions into Judah, into these tiny little towns that surround Jerusalem. And in the process, he and his army destroy 46 of these tiny little villages. And this includes the tiny village that Micah is from, the village of Morasheth, which is known for its shepherds. So it's these tiny little towns that bear the cost of this warfare. And so in this process of this ongoing political crisis, King Hezekiah of Judah makes an alliance with these smaller kingdoms of uh, Phoenicia and Philistine, 
And they created this little um, this group, this coalition to fight back against the Assyrians. And it's actually kind of successful. They create security for the nation and they usher in what one scholar calls an economic revolution. But in the process, it's people like Micah and these communities and these little towns that bear the cost. That their towns are the ones where soldiers from both sides are marching through and destroying. They, they're kind of a, a buffer zone with a more powerful place of, of Jerusalem. That when we talk about security, it's people like Micah who become the collateral damage of so-called security. That when we talk about an economic revolution being ushered in by King Hezekiah, what happens is that what happens with all so-called economic revolutions is the people at the very bottom, people outside of those powerful places that are left out that these wealthy landowners in places like Jerusalem begin buying up all the land in these tiny little towns, and the wealthy landowners become increasingly more and more wealthy, and a gap between the rich and poor opens even wider. Isn't it funny how history just continues to repeat itself over and over again? And so is it any wonder then that when Micah wants to look for the light of God to burst into the world, where he looks is not to powerful places in Jerusalem or in Assyria, not to the kings in either of those places, not to the generals or the political advisors. He looks to tiny little Bethlehem on the margins of the world, ready for the light and the love of God to, to burst into the world. That Micah becomes a, a preacher, a proclaimer of the good news. You know, in this season, we, we often talk about good news for the poor. Good news for those who are on the margins of the world. Good news for those who are struggling and suffering. It's why we do things like the, the giving tree or we have our Christmas Eve offering. And all of that is incredibly important. But what Micah does is he sort of inverts this whole thing. It's not good news for the poor and the marginalized. It's good news from the poor, the marginalized, and the forgotten. That Micah, this prophet who lives on the very edges of society, the periphery of the periphery, has good news to speak to us. He says, if you want to look and see what God is up to, look to the margins of the world. Look to tiny little Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is where we arrive later on tonight. Uh, and I know for all of us, it's a, a spiritual journey. It, all of this Advent celebration and expectation culminates tonight as we gather for worship, as we uh, hear the kids retell the Christmas story, and let me tell you, after practice, it's really cute. Uh, we get ready for the candle lighting and for all the Christmas carols you've been, been waiting to sing for four weeks now. It all culminates tonight as we arrive in Bethlehem. But I'm also aware that Bethlehem, as much as it's a spiritual place for us, it's also very much a real place, a real place that has been caught up in violence and war for decades now and is in this current war that's still caught up in all of this. Um, we've been watching over the last couple of months as war has gone on in Israel and Palestine. And, and let me say, it's, it's horrifying to me that civilians and children are taken hostage by Hamas. But it's also equally horrifying to me that missiles and bombs are sent into hospitals and refugee camps. And Bethlehem is away from all of this direct conflict, but they experience all of this. Bethlehem, the, the place where the first Christmas took place, the place where Jesus was born to 2,000 years ago. So Bethlehem normally is swelling with people during this time of year, but it's, this year it's, it's, it's noticeably empty. 
And the churches of Bethlehem have all canceled Christmas worship this year because of the ongoing war. And one particular church has made a statement with their nativity this year. The, the Lutheran church in Bethlehem uh, created this, this nativity scene. So, Sandy, if you want to bring that up. This has been dubbed Christ in the Rubble. And you can see the nativity scene there. You can see Christ sleeping amidst the rocks and the shepherds and, and everybody else. So the festive Christmas celebrations are not happening this year, but they're still continuing to pray that they've been going through this Advent season with all of this going on in the background. And the pastor of this congregation, a, a man named Reverend Isaac, uh, he said this about this, um, about this piece of work. He says, um, we wanted to send a message to the whole world, a message that while the whole world is celebrating Christmas in festive ways, here in Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus, where Christmas originated from, this is what Christmas looks like to us. And maybe when we look at the image of Jesus under the rubble, we can see the light and hope and life coming out of destruction, life coming out of death. This is where Micah tells us to look this morning, to look to the very margins of the world, the very edges of the world, and hear the good news that comes from them. Because this is the interesting thing that happens in all of these narratives that lead us up to Christmas, is that everything gets flipped upside down, you tell me to put my microphone. I, I hate this microphone. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm very spoiled. I need my diva mic. Um, <laughs> this whole message is a wash now, right? <laughs> what? I can do it, yeah. Um, this is what happens in the Christmas story is that the ones at the very bottom of the world become the ones who proclaim the good news to us. That it's those who we are, are often the objects of our charity and our compassion who speak good news to us. It's Mary from Nazareth, this poor little teenage girl on the very edges of the empire, the very edges of the world, who talks about God's blessings for her. That God has called her blessed. That maybe from her, we can hear that good news, that message of God's love for each and every one of us. That before anything else is spoken to us or about us, God's first word about us is grace, how beloved we are. That good news comes to us from Mary and Joseph who right now are looking for a place to stay in Bethlehem and they can't find anywhere to go. And, and maybe from them we can learn that, that everyone is looking for their place, what it means to make a place for all people, for every person. That right now, that the Magi are on their way following the star, these spiritual seekers, these, these people who become foreigners in a strange land. And maybe from them, we can hear the message of finding all that we are seeking and longing for in this season. That the shepherds outside of the, the hill, on the hills outside of Bethlehem, on the, the periphery of the periphery, on the margins of an already marginalized place, maybe we can hear from them what an, a so-called economic revolution really means that it only counts when everybody gets to share in the abundance, that maybe we can hear the good news being spoken to us, proclaimed to us from that prophet Micah, from the little town of Morasheth, who says that peace only is peace when there are no more collateral damage, when there is no more collateral damage, when it includes people like him. Go to Bethlehem, he says, 
the very edges of the world, the very margins of the world, see the light shining out from the rubble. Let's go to Bethlehem now and see this thing that has taken place. Thanks be to God. Amen.